The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Next item! I know my role here is to recount information to you. But with what lies ahead, I'm hoping you'll indulge me in a personal account. About five years ago, I served on a merchant vessel, running slaves in and out of Charlestown. I remember the first time I saw those walls, those patrol ships, and those f***ing guns. And the first mate leans in as he sees that look on my face. He says, that, son, is a town resolved never to be f***ed with. And as we're unloading our cargo, we watch gathering in the square, a gallows. And we watch as they haul up a man named Solomon Little. And they announce to the crowd that this When Captain Flip first arrived on this island, he gained influence faster than any man I'd seen before, or since. I heard men say it was because of the violence. I heard them say it was his charm. But it was clear to me the reason why he was so good at bending men towards his will was he knew the power of a story and how to harness it to his own ends. And that man there, I would argue, may very well be his equal. They put the rope around his neck. I listened to that excitement. You know it isn't even his. What do you mean? The pirate story is Bernard's. Heard him tell it before. That bit about the first mate of her before too. Jeffrey's, I think. Can't remember. Can't trust a thing out of his mouth. Yeah, the story's his, the story isn't his. But the power of the telling, that is clearly his. At the moment, he's using it to help the captain. But God help us if he ever realizes what else he could use it to accomplish. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, August 20th, 2015. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on 94.9 CHRW Radio Western, where we'll be with you from now till noon. No, it's not right wing. It's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And it's all about the power of the story today. And apparently there are some who believe that there are simply too many stories out there. Seriously. I'll explain that in a moment or two. Today we delve into... One of our arts and entertainment themes as we round off our show today with the the latest update on the Bill Cosby accusations and on the political campaign that motivates them. But for the greater part of the show, I'll be talking about a great uh, television show that I've recently discovered and that I will heartily recommend for your viewing pleasure and excitement and for an incredible insight into the very issues that we talk about on Just Right with some regularity. I'll get to that shortly. But first, also on the arts and entertainment theme, I wanted to take a look at the recent assertion made that there's, get this, too much scripted television programming out there. And I'm thinking to myself, really? That's not what I hear from most people I talk to. That's not the impression they get in terms of 
what they get on their cable television programming packages. My sense is that both viewpoints are a bit out of focus on the too much or too little scripted TV argument, but that there's some validity in these observations, and we'll try to reconcile those two observations right after reminding you that you can, of course, write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, and visit us at www.justrightmedia.org. Now, I have to say I take issue with some of the comments I'm about to cite from the following article on the state of scripted television programming. And while there are a few fascinating insights and observations made, I think the logic and argument that followed do not seem to make a lot of sense to me in, in terms of what is being said here. This is from the Associated Press, August 7th, and the headline reads, uh, it's by Fraser Moore, and, it's, and the headline reads, There's too much television, quote-unquote. And it basically cites John Landgraf, the CEO of FX Networks. He says he feels the audience's pain. He says viewers, along with network bosses, can all agree this is simply too much television. Speaking to TV critics on Friday, he noted that last year the total of original scripted TV series had swollen to an eye-popping 370. Can you think of 370 shows? And he predicted this year the number would likely exceed 400. Adding to the influx, of course, have been program newcomers like Netflix and Amazon and digital services such as Crackle. With such a proliferation of viewing options, he says, even the good shows contribute to the problem as they get in the way of the viewer finding the great ones, Landgraf said. This has had an enormous impact on everyone's ability to cut through the clutter and create real buzz. Says the trend won't be staying much longer, warning that in 2016 we'll see the numbers peak and then start declining. He says, you take a fixed audience and you divide it by 400-plus shows, it stands to reason that their ratings will go down, he said. Meanwhile, viewers' access to programs has extended from the night a given episode is introduced to potentially any time after that, thanks to video on demand and digital platforms spreading out each series' audience over days and even months. He says, uh, you're seeing a transformation in the mode that people are using to access television. Brand is a mission statement and a promise to viewers, he said. And uh, he talks about how all these shows are making it difficult to establish a brand. He says, FX is a brand viewers love and trust. And he says, managing through this transition is hard. Speaking for the shakeout that will face the TV business overall, he said, it's going to be a messy, inelegant process, end quote. Well, you know, I, I know as an old-time TV viewer, <laughs> uh, one thing I, I miss that just doesn't come to my door anymore is the old TV guide, except, of course, you can go online and find all the listings you want, but that's a pull medium, and it's not the same thing as something coming to your door and putting a smorgasbord right in front of you that you can look at and consider. And so the only real place I ever hear about a new or different TV show is through personal recommendations or through something I might read in one of the many papers that I read that happen to talk about a show. And while I do, you know, go online to get info on shows I, al I already know about, I don't really go looking for new as a category because I don't really care if the TV I discover for the first time really is really, really old, as long as it's good. Now, Three or four hundred scripted shows in production is not such a big number, which brings up another too much television dimension, the thousands of television series that have been produced since TV first took root. 
many of which are just as good to watch, you know, to watch today as for the first time as when they were aired. Everyone knows I'm a regular viewer of even some old shows, well, to say nothing of Star Trek, but shows like Perry Mason and Hogan's Heroes still watch them from time to time. Some series that have become classics. Uh, and new generations of TV viewers have not as yet experienced these already tried and trued and judged excellent by previous audiences, meaning that the odds of enjoying one of these series may go up. And of course, all of these old series compete with the new ones. Another factor to consider is that although there are more TV titles, they're no longer all created or marketed the same way. For example, they don't all have seasons of 22 to 24 episodes, but instead have irregular-sized seasons, say 8 episodes in the first season, 12 in the second, and so on. And they don't release these shows along any past ideas of a fall season, which I recall used to be my favorite issue of TV Guide back in the day, the fall season issue. But is it really true that there's too much television, scripted particularly? And, and in what context? Now, of course, for any one single individual viewer, it's axiomatic to say that there's too much of everything. One person simply cannot possibly absorb all of the TV shows ever made, being made now, or that will be made in the future. But ask yourself, are there too many books? Are there too many novels, too many magazines? Again, for one person, yeah, maybe. But what ultimately determines what's too much or too little of something is, of course, uh, profits and markets. Does it sustain itself? Are there enough people to watch it? It doesn't have to be the whole world. It doesn't have to be a majority or even a, a sizable minority. Just enough to keep that show uh, financed and running. So neither the um, profit or markets are fixed, especially relative to a fixed product like television entertainment. Just as profits can become losses, markets can both expand and contract. They're not fixed, and those who operate on a fixed pie theory, I think, are usually the ones who want to fix the pie. <laughs> and for FX CEO John Landgraf, the issue of too much television is not about the consumer's choices, but about, a, quote, an impact on everyone's ability to cut through the clutter and create real buzz, end quote, for his network. And that's why he says FX is a brand viewers love and trust, end quote. Might be true, but I wouldn't be always looking for a brand. I'd be looking for a great show. Now I clearly understand why he thinks there's too much scripted television. It's making it tougher for him and others to advertise and push their products so that people will notice it more than the rest. It's the competition factor. But of course, in reality, there's never too much of anything as long as it's economically sustainable. And of course, that pertains to the good old law of supply and demand. Personally, I might argue that there are too many reality TV shows, because I don't really watch them, <laughs> sports programming or children's TV shows. But I could not possibly make that an objective statement. All I'd really be telling you is what I don't usually watch. Clearly, these shows all exist, government subsidies aside, because enough people are watching them to make them economically viable to be produced. But there's another issue raised by the way this assertion has been focused only on scripted television. And I have a great respect for scripted television, you know, because scripted TV has a different status in my mind from all other forms of television fare. It's the most powerfully influential of all forms of audiovisual entertainment. Scripted television is where you will most often find the social commentary of the day and the time during which it was made. The writers, the screen editors, and directors 
are not merely making entertainment to keep us amused or attentive, although that's a prerequisite, but they're also editorializing and presenting a point of view on literally any topic or subject they might choose. And that's why on this show, Just Right, you'll find so many of the audio bites we select from various scripted TV shows are really no different in substance and kind than if you were to read a newspaper editorial. You know, it's the same issue. More than that, they're able to take these points of view and illustrate them by way of experience, which is the story to which most can relate. And together, those two things are a near-invincible persuasive power in determining the course of human affairs. Our earliest examples, of course, are the stories told in myths and legends and the religious texts of various world religions, and we've certainly taken, taken a closer look at those phenomenon on past broadcasts. But it's all about the power of the story and the power of the telling of that story, even if it is not one's own story. The telling of the story boils down to, of course, screenplay or adaptation of the original script, the director and the actors. And this, in turn, now brings me to one recent scripted TV show that I've discovered that may not be entirely original in its subject matter or theme, Pirates of the Caribbean but it is the most original in the telling of it that I have seen. And I'm talking about the Stars Network's production of what is some of the best television fare I've ever experienced, and it's called Black Sails. They've already, uh, they're already two seasons into the story, and two more seasons have already been renewed for production. But if ever, in addition to being fabulously engrossed and entertained, you also wanted an illustration of so many of the issues we discuss on this show, Voting, democracy, the monarchy, the role of the government, economics and trade, trust and loyalty, truth and falsehood, and of course law, order and justice, and yes, even storytelling itself. Then Black Sails delivers on these features in an unparalleled way. Our opener today was from that series. And as we begin our look at the show, I have made an uh, executive decision to not drop any plot spoilers into the discussion. Most of what you'll hear today is really about the theme, the philosophy, and the political struggle that is at work in the series. Now, the genre of this story would be classified as historical fiction, meaning the story itself is fiction, but the setting and time in which it takes place are relatively accurate. Black Sails takes place in the early 1700s. 1715 is the starting point. There are some few flashbacks to a decade or so earlier. And England no longer controls the trade going in and out of the port of Nassau since she has been unduly occupied with America, the Spanish, and the French. But England does have plans to retake the island, which is fortified by huge guns pointing out to the sea from the shore of the bay and is in control of the people on the island. As we sample our upcoming excerpt from Black Sails, and all of our, almost all of our selections today come from the second season, we find one of the main characters, Eleanor Guthrie, played by Hannah New, in conversation with her estranged father, Richard Guthrie, played by Shawn Michael. The Guthries had been operating in Nassau as a fence between the stolen goods of the pirates and the legitimate markets where those goods could be bought, sold, and traded. They built a complete empire in Nassau on this black market, which made Eleanor Guthrie, who took over the local trade after her father had abandoned it, the unofficial royalty on the island, and she effectively was the one in the control of the pirates. But she and a number of other forward-thinking and rational men, who also happened to be pirates, knew that their days operating this way were numbered, 
and they set about themselves the very unlikely task of transforming this anarchistic, violent, and unlawful environment into something that could be called civilization. Their objective? Turning plunder into commerce and profits. To that end, Eleanor has called upon her estranged father for help, but she does not trust him, at least as the conversation begins. You must understand, though you perceive my actions in recent weeks to have been taken with little regard for your welfare, the truth is exactly the opposite. All of my attempts to regain control of this place have been with an eye towards protecting you. You really have no idea what this is about, do you? Eleanor. You left me. After Mother was killed in the Rosario raid, you left me here. What kind of a reprehensible does something like that to a little girl? And then asks her to trust him again. Your mother's loss was almost unbearable to me. I must confess that in that moment, the only way I could think to carry on was to immerse myself in business and to remove myself from this place, from her memory. And for that, I'm sorry. Bullsh**. It wasn't about mother. It wasn't about an oversight. You left me here because I wasn't your son. Yes. I was focused on the work, and I saw no future in which a daughter would have a meaningful part in that. But Eleanor, look how wrong I was. Look what you have accomplished here. Pirate crews, repurposed as merchant shippers and showing profits. You've proved the conceit possible. You are making real what was for decades a fantasy. The idea that this place can be transformed, made profitable, redeemed from within and on its own terms. You are doing this without any help from me, nor from Whitehall, nor from anyone in London at all. It is entirely of your own making. And it is miraculous. One day, years from now, someone in London will sit down, light his pipe, and tell his children of the unlikely success story that was Nassau. And he will say it all began with a woman who decided to make it so. You have proven me so very wrong. And I could not be proud of you for it. It'll likely start with three ships. Maybe four. A tactical assault to retake the bay. Once England decides she wants this place back, the resources that she will commit towards that end are inexhaustible. Sooner or later we'll be driven inland, forced to fight as rebels from the interior, hoping to inflict enough damage and expense to compel the new governor to negotiate with what's left of us. For years, I prepared for that fight. Now it would appear that there is another way. A way in which we can control our futures without that fight. And as fate would have it, 
You are holding the key to make that possible. Vicar. Her father is a very powerful, very influential man. If I return her to him unharmed, I believe that I can win him as an ally, an advocate in London, to argue for a reconciliation with England where we keep our assets, maintain control, and name a governor of her own choosing. I believe that there is an opportunity at hand, an opportunity where we control our own futures. We just all need to agree to take it. Peter Ash. Returning his daughter might gain his ear. But there is no man in the Americas with a more strident contempt for piracy than he. No amount of appreciation is going to make him forget that. A long time ago, he and I were friends. Good friends. We fought alongside each other towards this very end. A stable and prosperous Nassau. We're talking about a man who took a struggling Carolina colony and turned it into a commercial success. And from what I'm told by friends in London, is unparalleled in his ability to maneuver the avenues of power in Parliament. If that man could be persuaded, as you say, if that man chose to be our advocate, I would certainly argue well for our prospects. What do I get? If this, if that, it all relies on an asset you do not possess. What do you get? You get what we all get, a future. Show it to me. Hand me my future here in this room. What? It isn't just your words, is it? promise of a thing hard to define and impossible to deliver. That is what you're suggesting I get. In exchange for surrendering an asset worth what that girl is worth. Well, if you're looking for something more immediate, then how about your own survival? If we cannot agree to do this together, then I walk out of here and I lead my men in cutting down what remains of yours. This girl is so valuable to you. And you would risk her death just to punish me. You want her, you have two choices. Try and take her and hope she survives the fight. Pay me what she's worth. And what exactly do you estimate that to be? One Spanish man of war. He can't do that, even if he wanted to. That ship belongs to his men. Says the woman who managed to separate me from my last ship with just a few choice words. If you want to see that girl alive, I suggest you not try and stop me. Among the men she is surrounded by right now, I am quite certainly the most reasonable one. I believe my terms are clear. You know where to find me to deliver your response. It's not easy to get a bunch of pirates to agree with one another, no less so than the voting public. Many of the issues you heard discussed there could have been discussed in the current federal election. And our Black Sales show opener today, right after actor Luke Arnold, who so brilliantly and entertainingly plays the character of John Silver, right after he called out the words, next item, you will have noticed you've heard the feet of the pirate crew stamping twice.
it's funny because now when I hear that, it brings a smile and this weird, you know, feel-good feeling to me, which is just one of the remarkable, subtle, and unpredictable emotional responses that this show managed to elicit. It would be a spoiler if I were to explain how the crew stamping their feet in unison had become a symbol of something far greater mainly a tribute to the master storyteller. And speaking of masterful stories, we're talking about the the, the television series Black Sails, which is terrific. I do have to caution everyone from the outset, though. I don't know about recommending this show for the kids. It's certainly an adult content and subject matter and contains, yes, scenes of nudity, sexual encounters, graphic violence, and, of course, salty seafaring language, none of which I would call gratuitous, though, contrary to one or two reviews views I ran across. I always find gratuitous sex or violence or even views of the scenery to be gratuitous in the context of the story when it's presented in a way that has nothing to do with advancing the plot or story or necessary characterizations and relationships. And this is a pirate show that has no yo-ho-hos and a bottle of rum to be found in black sails, let me tell you. Above all, Black Sails is a story-driven epic, and having seen the series to its current second season ender, I now clearly understand that no scene within its numerous chapters does not have a clear purpose towards a big picture. For me, it was like reading a great novel you just can't put down until you find out what happens next, and even then you can't put the novel down. State politics, personal politics, the politics of economy, sexual politics, family politics, these are all the ultimate driving forces behind the action in this story. They're also the focus of a lot of our selected audio bites from that series today. There have thus far been two seasons of Black Sails, with another two already approved to be renewed. The first season's comprised of eight one-hour episodes. The second has ten one-hour episodes. I noticed they all originally uh, um, aired or were, were put online sometime between uh, January and March of each year, and I think that's when the next ones are coming up. The episodes have no separate titles, by the way. They're each a chapter in one longer continuing story designated simply by Roman numerals to indicate the chapter number. Wikipedia describes Black Sails as adventures of ruthless pirate Captain Flint and fast-talking John Silver 20 years before the event of Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island. It's an American dramatic adventure television series set on New Providence Island and a prequel to Robert Louis Louis Stevenson's novel Treasure Island. The series was created by Jonathan Steinberg, Robert Levine for stars that debuted online for free on YouTube and other various streaming platform and video on-demand services on January 18, 2014. The debut on cable television followed a week later on January 25th. They've already renewed the show for a 10-episode second season, which uh, which is pre- premiered. This, uh, this is already an older entry, I can see that, which has already been played, and renewed two more seasons in the future. So it's not something you're going to put your time into and not get more out of in the future. And it's set roughly two decades before the events of Treasure Island. And according to the first episode in 1715, West Indies, the pirates of New Providence Island threaten maritime trade in the region. The laws of every civilized nation declare them hostis humani generis, enemies of all mankind. In response, the pirates adhere to a doctrine of their own war against the world. Real-life pirates that are fictionalized in the show include Anne Bonney, Benjamin Hornigold, Jack Rackham, Charles Vane, Ned Lowe, and Blackbeard. The plot of the first season focuses on the hunt for the Spanish treasure galleon Urca de Lima, and it is on the second season a bit, too. The series is filmed at Cape Town Film Studios in South Africa with a local company, Film Africa, uh, 
And the opening title sequence, which is amazing, was made by Imaginary Forces and directors Michelle Doherty and Karen Fong in the back, backing Sea Shanty-inspired theme composed by Battlestar Galactica and The Walking Dead composer Bear McCreary. It accurately features an instrument of the period in the form of the hurdy-gurdy. For the amount of detail that was added to the vessels, it took over 300 workers just to build one ship, to give you some idea of the budget this thing has. And uh, it's interesting, some of the receptions, good and bad, good, Tim Goodman of The Hollywood Reporter said this ambitious pirate story has helped immensely by going beyond the pay cable freedoms that often bog down lesser shows in boobs, blood, and sex. Black Sail steers itself out of that realm after a few episodes and makes a play for bigger, more complicated stories. Um, Black Sails is a pirate treasure, says Robert Lloyd of the Los Angeles Times. The Stars series vividly depicts the daily life of pirates. Jeff Jensen of Entertainment Weekly says, Not even a guilty pleasure, Black Sails is arrestingly good. (laughs) Tom Long of the Detroit Times commented, Alliances are made and broken, power shifts go this way and that, blood is spilled and wenches keep wenching. It's oddly addictive, and the cast, made up of mostly British, Australian, and Canadian actors, is as sharp as you'd expect from pay cable. Conversely, Brian Lowry of Variety said Black Sails never quite takes off, developing into a tired treasure hunt within different casting and stock characters. Don't understand that, but there were a few other thumbs down on it, like the Huffington Post. What's mystifying writes uh, uh, Joanne Ostro, or sorry, um, Maureen Ryan of the Huffington Post, is why stars and the creators of Black Sails seem to think that given the expanding array of options available to consumers, any content creators can get away with peddling fare that can't even manage to be consistently mediocre. Uh, can't relate to that. Uh, says jo- Joanne Ostro of Denver Post, the cast is stunning, the music enticing, yet Black Sails lands too quickly on an island, which is true in the first few episodes, but not further on. It's a, another Lincoln, Lincoln Journal star, Jeff Korbleck. The drama is nothing more than a video game with a story secondary to the blood and sex. Well, I'm personally stunned by these reactions. I don't think that they're watching what I was watching. What I do see is that these negative reviewers are commenting more on their expectations, so don't have any expectations going into watching this show, rather than on the story itself. Um, You know, consider the wild and extreme inconsistencies between one review that complains about the story being bogged down by landing on an island, and the other seeing it as nothing but a video game featuring blood and sex. These two things just don't coincide. But mostly thumbs up. Out of 47 reviews, I only found three or four negative. And um, just terrific reviews. Um, For example, um, who can possibly take a pirate show seriously, says Entertainment Weekly in a larger uh, review. Uh, He explains, well, stars can. And if you give black sales half a chance and a bit of grace, you can too. I know of other reviews that have not been kind, but I was impressed by the conceptual framework of the series and by most of the characters acting in conflict. The story, of course, set in the golden age of piracy, etc., etc. And they describe Captain Flint, interestingly, as an extreme libertarian, a would-be king. And he says, Black Sails resides and should reside in that sweet spot between the very serious and totally unpretentious. It is fantasy, but its historical literary roots lend it a real-world resonance that other grander, more purely fantastic genre series lack. The first several episodes are kind of light on the high seas adventure. You know, (laughs) I agree with that, 
but that's not where the story was. There's clearly some confusion about what a libertarian is in this assessment. I don't know many libertarians who see themselves as would-be kings. <laughs> libertarians are anarchists, and anarchy is the very thing that Captain Flint wants to end in Nassau. But I do understand the sentiment that the reviewer is expressing. Flint does believe in free trade and commerce, and he believes in some form of government or objective rule that should oversee that freedom. This was clear from the very outset of the series and expli made explicit in the second season. A couple of other reviews, just interesting observations. One here says, unless one makes the mistake to confuse black sales with a history lesson, it is one of the best shows being currently produced. The characters all have credible motives within the fictional setting and they act on it, which is more than more most shows can boast. Uh, another one, this is a really decent pirate show. If you like the style and atmosphere of Star's Spartacus series, you'll like this too. Not something I'm familiar with, but hey. Uh, cast is fine, etc., etc. And he says, hint, don't take mainstream full of unsound and empty arguments filled with polit political correctness reviews too seriously. Another one says, this one's uncommonly good, an under-the-radar series that you have to check out. And um, this was a very important one. Someone reviewed season two, said it is in fact when the show's characters more vividly come to life and an entire backstory was revealed that helped shed light on the first eight episodes. In fact, looking back, the cloud of mystery that shrouded both Flint and Miranda in season one was a big gamble, but given all we learned in season two, we can now look back and know that the frustration we felt over the lack of clear answers was intentional and necessary in order for the payoff. And that's true. That last sentence was a brilliant and accurate observation. Would have written it myself had I not found this great expressed review. Remember, Black Sails is one continuing story. Though there are many things resolved from episode to episode. It's not over till it's over. And, of course, everyone talks about the drama, the sex, the production, the characters, the personalities, the music, all perfectly okay. But rarely, if ever, do we hear a discussion about the substance of the story. There's so much going on in Black Sails that makes for a laboratory test tube experiment of so many subjects we talk about on this show. For example, as we ha just happen to be in the middle of an election, and as we're preparing elections south of the border, have you ever wondered why people vote for the candidates they do? The truth is often less comforting on this count. Black Sales offers some fascinating insights into psychology of voting. Witnessed it firsthand myself, and in the following scene we find Captain Flint, still my hero at the end of season two, in conversation with his first mate on the status of the latest voting poll taken in advance of a vote being held on his captaincy. The conversation is a real eye-opener. It's hard to deny that I haven't too often heard similar rationalizations for why and how people vote in today's elections. More on Black Sales when we return. Where's your count? Hard to tell. Everyone's holding this one close. I'm here in Europe three. I have it as four. You have Dobson as an A. Yes. Brewer as an A. Yes. Winslow? Winslow? No, he's a Yevo. When did you ask him? A little while ago. Why, something happened. He got into it with Muldoon over last mess, said Muldoon was chewing too loud or something. Muldoon brought his mother into it. Muldoon's in your camp, so Winslow flipped as a f you. Seriously. That was a good one. Yeah. My seamanship, my prospects for garnering plunder, my skill in the fight, the sound of my voice, the sound of another man's eating. I suppose at the end of the day, 
They're all functionally equivalent. Man casts his vote for the same reason he does anything in his life. Why is that? Because it feels good. Three votes, four votes. Thirty of them will change their minds before they raise their hands tonight. The thing that will decide this vote hasn't happened yet. You're going to convince them they'll feel better about voting for you over him. I think I got a pretty strong case. Here's where a lot of them will die tonight. My way, they won't. And we'll gain the favor of a man who could move this place a step closer to sustainability. Perhaps. Though still, his argument would seem to be the easier one. You think? Sure. Captain Flint will betray anyone to get what he wants. Yesterday it was Mr. Gates, today it was me. Which one of you would like to be tomorrow? men in Whitehall who could potentially find a proposal such as yours to be plausible on religious grounds, on economic grounds. I know some of these men. You could almost certainly win them to your side. But there are other men who will oppose it categorically. For the same reason all men refuse to do things they should. Pride. You think they're too proud to put pardons on the table? I think they fear you, and to capitulate to something one fears is a humiliation that powerful men cannot accept. If we are to persuade them to ally with you, then we have to completely redefine their understanding of who you are, what you are. How do you propose we do that? With the truth. I will come with you to Nassau. Survey the situation. If it is as you say it is, you and I will sail to London together. And when we arrive, you will stand up and you will tell your story. My story? What part of my story? All of it. You will tell them about the affair with Thomas. You will tell them how it ended. You will explain to them what it drove you to do. You will reveal everything. And when you do, Captain Flint will be unmasked, the monster slain. And in his place will stand before all the world a flawed man, a man that England can relate to and offer its forgiveness. Well, some powerful political psychology at work there. A lot of lessons like that in this show. And even the voting process of how the pirates would vote for, for their captains and even for parts of their crew. I've often argued that there's a world of difference between fundamental democracy and the process of voting. Simply too many people believe that mere voting is the same as democracy. You know, if the people can vote, then it's a democracy. If they can't, then it isn't. If more people vote, then it's a healthy democracy. The very thing we heard said by Trudeau, May, and Mulcair in their comments on a show last week. 
But if ever there was a better illustration of the distinction between just voting and a healthy democracy, then black sales would be a hard one to beat. A show about piracy in the early 1700s. Though they could abstain and weren't forced to do so, pirates voted all the time. They voted for their captains. They voted for the ship's second-in-command. They voted on the mission. They voted on vacation time in terms of employment and profit-sharing. And most importantly, they voted on loyalty and trust. And, of course, there was no law and order in Nassau and the established sense of government being the framework within which that law would be enforced. And so there was no established authority on the island. But there were a myriad of competing laws and competing systems of order and competing values created by the pirates themselves. And one cannot function or survive in the long term on a system of plunder, and even the pirates and black sails were aware of that. Moreover, interestingly, stealing amongst themselves was a crime punishable by death. Execution would be carried out by the victim of the theft and or by his two, ten, twenty, or thirty closest buddies. What was another interesting dimension of the pirate life portrayed in black sails was the relatively open competition between them enemy pirate ships and individual members of each ship's crew. This even pertained to both captaincy and the crew. There was this competition. Come on over, join our crew. Bottom line, the enticement was always profit, and the existence of profit and commerce was what drove everything, including the political and social power structure. There were those who sincerely wanted to turn their lives of plunder into lives of trade, and there were those who preferred the life of plunder. Getting these two sides to cooperate is one of the great challenges underlying the overarching plot of black sales. Now, I have to say, one of the most emotionally uncomfortable issues I found myself confronting while I was watching Black Sails was a profoundly moral issue. What constitutes the justifiable use of force and under what circumstances? You know, some things are black and white, but Black Sails could not have been more aptly named. It confronted me with the seeming paradox that at times some things are black and black, the lesser of a given number of evils, if you will. Fortunately, that's only an illusion created by moral hindsight of knowing not only the outcome of events, but also having an understanding of the motivations of the characters who presented me with this illusory paradox. But here's my dilemma and how I've resolved it so far, without actually knowing at this point how the bigger story is going to resolve itself. From the outset of Black Sails in Season 1 to its finale in Season 2, season finale, my two heroes have consistently been the characters Captain Flint and Eleanor Guthrie, though other characters have been much more entertaining in some ways. The two of them essentially share the same vision of transforming Nassau from chaos into a civilized port of commerce and trade. They want to make that bridge between plunder and trade. But in the course of their mission, these two very principled individuals with a proper and virtuous ideal find themselves having to resort to some very questionable and shocking acts of violence to keep their vision from falling apart. And these are the good guys relative to the the rest. But here is the vacuum that existed in NASA at the height of its piracy days. There was no established authority, no objective courts, no police, no army, no official structures of any sort. What did exist in Nassau at the time was a very libertarian, anarchistic community of wholly private interests, all in competition with each other, often to the degree of being at war with each other should the opportunity arise. Now, I hate to say it, 
But the social system that's portrayed in NASA by the TV series Black Sails is exactly the kind of society idealized and projected by more libertarians than I can possibly count. I've heard them actually advocate systems like this. You know, they say, well, we don't need government. Everyone will just get along and we can have competing police and armed forces and you just pay the one that best protects your rights. Disputes will be settled by people just picking and choosing their dispute resolution mechanisms and on and on and on. Well, all you libertarians who talk like that, just check out what your great libertarian ideal would look like. No wonder director of the Ayn Rand Institute, Yaron Brook, in speaking to the issue of libertarianism at her Free Freedom Party event in 2013 said, I would rather have what we have today than have anarchy. So, to parallel history, the characters Captain Flint and Eleanor Guthrie are very much like the first king and queen who eventually hoped to establish a stable and permanent realm within which their subjects could enjoy relative peace and security. And that very condition is what ultimately resolved my moral dilemma. They had no final authority to appeal to. They were it. And they earned it. This is, you know, this also very much morally justifies their request that England, upon reestablishing its authority in Nassau, pardon the pirates who swear allegiance to England upon its return. The residents of Nassau wanted self-government within the protectorate of the British crown as their ideal resolution to the piracy. Now, in our past discussions of governance and the monarchy, we learned from history that all realms of political jurisdiction originated from the kinds of conditions that are portrayed in black sails. Kingdoms originated and were ruled by those who appointed themselves king by virtue of having the biggest gun, the smartest ideas, and the greater and most stable use of force. Those kingdoms that could stand the test of time and continue to resist invasion from other kingdoms and countries were the kingdoms that became the established authority of the realm, and which eventually, throughout the course of British history in particular, evolved from an absolute monarchy to that of a constitutional monarchy. All this happened largely as a consequence of the same kinds of power struggles that you find illustrated in black sails. And assuming that the Crown's judgment is just, no one morally questions the right of the government to punish, imprison, or even execute a convicted criminal, nor to bomb an avowed uh, uh, and aggressive enemy of life, liberty, and property. You know, what was happening in the fictional world of black sails was in many ways a reflection of uh, the American Revolution that led to its independence from, uh, from Britain. So in many ways, you know, uh, politics today is still piracy, even today in the most democratic of countries. The difference is to the extent that such piracy takes place, it takes place under an established authority against which we do not retaliate until, and always, as history shows, the level of piracy reaches an unbearable or unsustainable point. As French statesman Frederick Bastiat, when he hit the nail on the head, when he said a century after black sails uh, in his country of France, he gave a warning to the French assembly to what he called the socialists of all parties. He said, when goods don't cross borders, armies will, or pirates. But the pirates usually precede the armies. Then as now, and always in the future, when governments interfere or prohibit with trade of virtually any product or service otherwise being traded consensually, conflict will, un, will necessarily and unavoidably arise. Because remember, government is a gun, society's gun. For what ends and to what purpose it, is it justifiable to use it? That's the real political debate that has always to be resolved. 
If it does nothing else, watching a show like Black Sails will help you appreciate why good governance is so critical to the well-being of everyone. It frightens me to think that the anarchical world of Black Sails could come back to revisit us if we allow our governments to become as dysfunctional as Britain and England was at the time of this period in history, as they turn from governing to their you know, legal piracy of wealth redistribution. That, too, has a limit and a breaking point. Keeping the trade routes and trade winds free of coercion, whether from thieves, governments, or pirates, is quite rightly the proper function of a government. But as each election passes, our governments and politicians are looking and sounding more like the pirates. And if it's true that the secret of a good story is in the telling of that story, then Black Sails can sail clear and certainly meets that standard. So if you want to really experience the power of a story, check it out. It's called Black Sails. And, uh, you know... Here's a message on why, in politics and survival, we so often find it necessary to choose the lesser of a given number of evils coming up next in this clip, which is why sometimes some things appear black and black. In some ways, the following conversation is not unlike that of many I've heard amongst voters, say, talking about Stephen Harper when their other choices are unpalatable to them. In this one, we find one of the pirates is, is in captivity of another, and he's come down to have a word with him to talk about joining his crew. And here we go. You're the bosun. Mr. Gates' boy, aren't you? I've got a confession to make. The Singleton affair. When Jack and I attempted to alter the vote on your ship, see Flint deposed. It was intended to induce key men on your crew to defect, then to recruit them ourselves. But most specifically, it was with an eye toward recruiting you. We'd heard about you. Not some petty thief in it for coin. Not some coward. In need of a bottle to find his courage in a fight. A proper pirate. Committed to our way of things. Committed to a life free of the yo- you. And loyal to a fault. You can see how that is a man we'd have wanted on our side of things. A man I could still use now. You have no idea what's going on here, do you? Flint stole from me and I'm making it right. Exactly. You hate Flint. I hate Flint. But right now, he's talking about how we survive what comes next. And you're talking about what you think is yours. When the Navy arrives, they aren't going to give a f what belongs to you or what belongs to me. Because to them, there is no difference between you and me. He has you so afraid of an imagined threat. <laughs> I saw it. With my own eyes. The garrison on Harbour Island. Royal Marines. A full company of them. 200 men in support. The Scarborough anchor. And a commander just waiting for the order to begin his assault against us. And exterminate every last one of us. There is nothing imagined about the threat we all face. I assure you. And right now you're only plan to reckon with it to try and fight them head to head. Each crew for themselves. Right now, Flint's plan is the only plan.
Jackie. I want to say thanks. Before we read about your rape, many of us knew hushed stories of friends being assaulted. Some of us even had our own stories, but we were afraid to talk about it. Now, that's going to change. Thank you for pulling back the curtain, for taking rape from an open secret to a public issue. Thank you for breaking the cycle that kept victims feeling suppressed and powerless. Thank you for sparking a conversation about sexual assault that will forever change the way that we understand this issue. Thanks for your bravery. And thanks for your deceit, because of course, as we all know today, that whole story about Jackie's gang rape that appeared in Rolling Stone magazine turned out to be completely false and no such incident occurred. Nor should any such incidents have to occur or even be faked. If one's intention is simply to spark a conversation about sexual assault, which is something I sincerely doubt is their intention, sparking that conversation by ad advocating that unproven allegations of rape should be discussed in public in the court of public opinion has been the goal of feminist lawyer Gloria Allred from the very beginning of her organized public attacks on actor and comedian Bill Cosby, which we've been covering at some length here on the show. And I've been saying since the Cosby allegations stories broke that he's been the focus of an orchestrated campaign led by Gloria Allred, feminist lawyer, to not only change the concept of consent to something called affirmative consent, but more importantly, to avoid getting into a court of law and to try and force a debate back into the court of public opinion, which is exactly the, the objective of that clip that we just heard. And, of course, the latest development in the Cosby case happened last week, Thursday. As reported in the National Post, three more women have come forward accusing Cosby of improprieties, and as I've predicted, they all fit the exact qualifications of the complainants that L Gloria Allred is searching for, most notably that they all fall beyond any statutes of limitations, and that this is what justifies bringing these allegations into the court of public opinion. And, uh, you know, even if all these allegations were completely true, which we know they're not, that conversation is over, I think, in terms of continuing the allegations. Many of the women making them had already agreed to out-of-court settlements of various kinds. To me, it's just insane that we're even talking about this. But in the, in the, um, this is from the New York Times and re reported again in the National Post last week. And apparently, Gloria Allred has challenged Bill Cosby's lawyer to a public debate uh, in conjunction with the release of these three latest and Allred suggested there were other accusers waiting in the wings and, challenge, and challenged the lawyer for Cosby, Monique Presley, to debate the raft of sexual allegations. Presley had been on a media campaign arguing that Cosby had never been charged with a crime, etc., etc. And she, so she says to her, you know, um, Allred is saying, I challenge you to debate me since I now represent more than 21 of these alleges, Allred said. Presley rep replies, well, lawyers representing clients resolve matters in courts, not in debates. And apparently, um, um, Cosby's going to be questioned under oath on October 9th, so expect more of this uh, in another case that he sexually assaulted someone. You know, it, we shouldn't even be having uh, this conversation, but if it says anything, it says that what I've been saying on the past is very, very accurate. This is what the whole issue is about. Um, you know, but one very startling and unexpected revelation that came out in the recently opened in, uh, deposition of a previous allegation that we covered earlier on the show 
was, get this, uh, Cosby did not have sexual intercourse with the vast majority of his accusers, and nor is there any dispute of that fact. And it was an observation I constantly ran into when originally reviewing the first 20 or so allegations that we covered on the show. The allegations seemed to range from everything from an unwanted kiss at a party to an allegation that Cosby was licking someone's toes to inappropriate behavior to just about everything except intercourse. And when I originally covered these, I saw that strange lack of reported intercourse as being some kind of uh, evidence of deceit, but apparently I was wrong. Cosby himself confirmed it. And, you know, I kept running into this. Turns out his unwillingness was a key part of the cross-examinations. And this is from the New York Times again. Uh, and again, from the original time when they released those depositions, quote, expounding on his philosophy about sex, Mr. Cosby said he, he tended to refrain from intercourse because he did not want the women to fall in love with him. To him, he said, the act of sexual intercourse is something I feel a woman will succumb to more of a romance and more of a feeling, not love, but it's deeper than a playful situation. As far as he and Miss Constant went, he said they were just playing sex, playing, petting, etc. Was he in love with her? No. Yet the association endured for years. And then there, of course, was the other issue of hiding this behavior from his wife. And uh, everybody's talking about that. But actually, on this count, I can recall that one of Cosby's accusers being outraged by the fact that the personal phone number that Cosby gave her to get a hold of him was a number that led right to the bedroom of him and his wife, and that it was his wife who casually answered the phone very late one night. She wasn't surprised by any of this. So, you know, the more I hear about the particulars of the Cosby case, the more weird and bizarre it gets. I just don't know what to tell you on this count. I can't claim to have an omnipotent knowledge about whatever really happened in the particular incidents relating to Cosby and his alleges. All I know is what I've been able to read in the papers on, and online, but I do know a political campaign when I see one, and that's the first thing I saw and identified from the very outset in clear and unambiguous terms, and the very person I zeroed in on as one of the key movers was Gloria Allred. And I also identified her very plainly self-proclaimed objective of making it acceptable for women to accuse men of sexual assault in a public arena and in the court of public opinion away from the scrutiny of law. You know, sometimes I just hate being just right. <laughs> but uh, it's still about the story, isn't it? Even with Cosby, who has the best story, that's who's going to win. But as to being just right, we'll continue our lifelong journey in the right direction uh, right after this. And we'll be back next week again when we return to continue that journey. Until then, be right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be where are you going, Master? It is four o'clock in the morning. Oh, Roger and I are going uh, hunting for sunken treasure. How do you know there is treasure there? Well, I, I don't know exactly. It's just that uh, a lot of pirate ships used to ply the waters off the coast here, and it's rumored that Captain Kidd had a ship to go down with a lot of sunken treasure on it. Who, who is this Captain Kidd? Oh, I was just reading about her. Oh, let's see, Captain Kidd, Captain Gibraltar, oh, uh, William Kidd started out as a respectable seaman. The British government sent him out to harass the French fleet in 1700. His men forced him to turn renegade, and he became a pirate. Well, he was kind of fellow. It took the whole British Navy to look for him. I'm sure he was not as brave as you, Master. <laughs> no.
<laughs> I'd hate to have tangled with him, I'll oh, tell you that. I'm sure you would have beaten him, Master. No, I doubt it. Oh, yes, you would have. <clears throat> he beat Captain Kidd. <laughs> and the orders, Captain. And Captain? You beat Captain Kidd. You're our new leader. <laughs> Well, I certainly appreciate your offer, but I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to stay. You ain't thinking of running out on us, are you? No, no, but I, I do have a... Because the only way anyone ever leaves this crew is feet first. Feet first. Any orders? Uh, no, no, not at the moment, but if I, uh, if I have any, I'll certainly let you know. All right, Captain. Back to work, you lovers. I don't trust that one. He has an honest face. <laughs>